Hi, I'm Archie McFarlane. I'm a research analyst at Tech Against Terrorism, an organization that disrupts terrorist activity online. Welcome back to our podcast. This week, we're discussing the ethics of content moderation, asking who gets to decide what we say online and why, and how this debate has evolved alongside growing calls to moderate terrorist and extremist content. Content moderation is the process used by online platforms to decide, monitor and enforce which user-generated content is allowed to be published. This involves developing rules for users called community guidelines and filtering out illegal or other types of harmful content, such as extremist or child sexual abuse material. This is a complex and constantly evolving debate which closely interacts with broader issues of power, governance and the responsibility of private entities in public spaces. The evolution in tech moderation practices, from removing only the most egregious content such as terrorist propaganda, to the policing of more ambiguous, offensive content, highlights the complex balance between safeguarding online spaces and preserving freedom of speech. And as the digital world becomes increasingly pervasive, the power and responsibility of tech companies in shaping public discourse has understandably come under intense scrutiny. Decisions to deplatform individuals or groups, even when their content is not explicitly illegal, raise questions about the legitimacy of tech companies as arbiters of public dialogue. And given the substantial influence social media has on the political debate and outcomes such as elections, the stakes have never been higher. Joining us today is Dr. Alistair Reid, Associate Professor at the Cyber Intelligence and Threat Centre at Swansea University and former director of the International Centre for Counterterrorism in The Hague. Alistair, thank you for joining us today. Could you start by telling us what led you to focus your research on the issue of content moderation? Yeah, good morning, Archie. Thanks a lot for asking me to be on this podcast today. So I've been researching terrorism for the past 15 years, and for about the last 10 years I've been focusing more and more on terrorist propaganda and particularly after the rise of um, Islamic State and their very successful exploitation of online spaces, been looking at how can we stop the spread and circulation of that terrorist propaganda online. And this has led me on to looking at content moderation processes and eventually the ethics of content moderation. I started getting more interested in the ethics of it when we had politicians asking social media networks to increasingly take more and more content down. And some of this content, well, I may have agreed that being taken down, it wasn't actually illegal. So this kind of get, got me more and more interested into looking at the frameworks of it and how these decisions were made. But around about the same time, we also saw increasingly tech company bosses coming out and expressing their concerns over the power that they had to make decisions about what was or wasn't on their platforms. Most notably, Mark Zuckerberg came out in, I think it was 2018, saying that he was increasingly believed that Facebook shouldn't be making so many important decisions about freedom of expression and safety on its own. So why does content moderation matter? It matters in its broadest sense because the online world is so pervasive. So virtually all of the information that we receive today is filtered from the online world. If you read a newspaper article, it's more likely that you got this article because it came through your social media feed or you searched for something online in the search engine. So everything that you see is filtered by the algorithms but also the content moderation rules of these platforms which set out 
what can and can't be on their platforms, but also what gets promoted, what is allowed to be searchable. And what have you noticed about how content moderation has evolved since you've been studying it? Yeah, we've seen this sort of real evolution over the last 10 years. If you remember, we go back to sort of the early rise of um, Islamic State and there was a flood of ISIS propaganda on mainstream social media platforms. And it's really forced um, tech companies start to get to grips with um, content moderation of of terrorist content, which they've really been largely successful of removing sort of ISIS material from most of the major platforms. But what we've seen is an evolution of the type of content which they have included in these processes to remove. But we've also now reached a place where, on the one hand, social media companies are criticised for not going far enough, for not doing enough, not taking enough off, but also, on the other hand, being criticised for going too far and essentially of being accused of censorship. But we also have a further issue that we only really see the tip of the iceberg of content moderation processes, how it's all carried out. And this creates a sort of vacuum information which creates a space in which conspiracy theories can emerge about biases of content moderation or involvement of outside sources in deciding what is or isn't removed. Most of the work looking at the ethics of content moderation sort of broadly addresses two questions. The first one is, how do we identify extremist content online? And this is largely about how do we use artificial intelligence and so on to be able to identify content and then the different ethical issues associated with that. And then the much broader question of what is extremist content and how do we define it and where do we draw the line between what is content that should be allowed on our platforms and what is content that should be removed from platforms. However, I wanted to look at something slightly different. I wanted to look at who makes the rules and who decides what can be said online. Because free speech is not just about what gets said, it's about who decides what gets said. So you're looking at the mechanics of how these decisions are actually being made. Can you explain this process in a bit more detail? Social media companies started out as tech companies, but increasingly their role has evolved in essentially being the governors of of the online communities they've created. And if we especially look back at the last 10 years, we've seen these um, great big vast private governance structures that have been created by social media companies that employ tens of thousands of people to monitor and to regulate what gets said online. And some people describe these private government structures actually more akin to administrative law in their kind of structure. But if we look back to the foundations of content moderation, where they get the the structure from, the foundations for most content moderation come from government legislation. In most countries, there's some kind of legal framework that bans some content online. And this varies from country to country depending on their, their attitudes to free speech. But at a minimum, there's always things such as te- um, prescribed terrorist groups or child pornography, which is banned online. So we have this content which is banned um, under local laws. But in most cases, the um, interpretation and enforcement of this is essentially outsourced to tech companies. So they essentially monitor what is said on their platforms and decide whether it breaks the law and then take the enforcement action to remove it. So that delegates a huge amount of power and responsibility to tech companies. But then on top of that, there's another layer. There is the terms and conditions that you sign up to when you join a social media platform, the community standards or community rules. 
And these rules go far beyond what is just illegal. And these are the, the online ru- rules which govern what can be said on the platform, what is acceptable behaviour, and this includes everything from sort of bullying, harassment, right through to rules about um, terrorist and extremist content. You know, if we look at terrorist and extremist content, most of the main social media platforms have evolved to a place where they have lists of banned organisations. And these lists of banned organisations include that terrorist and extremist groups which have been described but they also include other groups where they've added to it. And uh, there can be very good reasons for this. It could be splinter groups or new groups which haven't yet been banned or prescribed. It could also be groups which are closely associated with prescribed groups and support them and so on. But their rules, terms and conditions, so expand beyond what is just illegal. So it explains why, obviously, tech companies in the US started out very libertarian because very little was illegal because of free speech. And then these mainly US-based tech companies have evolved to you know, cover more and more content. And obviously, as you say, they're not just their terms of service, but their community guide- guidelines have become stricter. So with that in mind, could you highlight some specific cases of these more controversial groups or parties or organizations which have been banned by tech companies? So... When I wanted to look into this, what I did was I, I looked at two different sets of case studies which put the issue into context and help us to see why this was an issue and why there's potentially something to be concerned about. And the two sets of case studies I looked at was first, deplatforming from like go from ISIS to political extremists, and second, deplatforming of online platforms themselves. So if we take the first one. As I mentioned earlier, most um, social media platforms have lists of banned organizations and entities. But what has been considered extremist um, and should be removed has evolved over time. Now, in many ways, dealing with the Islamic State was relatively easy compared to challenges to come. On the one hand, their content was easily identifiable. On the other hand, there was broad agreement that that was a bad thing and their content should be removed. But as you start moving away from ISIS to look at other types of, um, not so much terrorist, but extremist content, that consensus starts to to break down. Now, I looked at some examples of from Facebook and what became the dangerous individuals and organizations list. This is their, their list of um, banned organizations, and that includes a terrorist organizations. All ISIS content or praise and supported ISIS content is banned on Facebook. But if we look at how the types of groups have expanded over time, there was a few cases that caught my attention. Um, the first one was Britain First, which are a far-right group in the UK. And they were banned by Facebook under the Dangerous Individuals and Orgs policy. And Britain First actually tried to, to sue Facebook. They accused the platform of what they called political gerrymandering, and for political discrimination, saying that essentially Facebook was playing this role in deciding who had the right to engage in political discourse on their platform. And then we had similar things from a party in in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, the Sarada Party, which represents um, Republican dissidents. They were likely banned and also tried to sue Facebook, essentially saying that Facebook was taking a decision about making political decisions about who can who can speak in the online space. 
Now, these are both sort of relatively fringe political organisations, but we also saw the case of political organisations which had one step, one foot in the mainstream, sort of Golden Dawn Party in Greece that was banned by Facebook when they had um, members of parliament and also members in European parliament. I mean, we also have to remember that Golden Dawn was later banned as a criminal organisation in Greece. But before that happened, they were had members of parliament and they were a banned organisation by Facebook. This goes all the way through to January 6th, when we see the events in, of storming the Capitol in, in Washington, where we saw most of the mainstream political platform and social media platforms banning Trump, like the aftermath of it. Now, the question here is not so much, was that the right thing to do, or was the right thing to do to, um, to ban the likes of um, Britain First and Golden Dawn, but the question of who should make these decisions. In the aftermath of um, banning Trump, I think um, the German Chancellor Angela Merkel summed it up quite well, where she essentially said that you know, free speech can be interfered with, but um, she's saying it should be done in accordance with a framework of, of uh, defined by legislators and not left to decision of management of social media companies. So why does this all matter? It matters if we think if the events or similar like January 6th were to happen again, who do you want to be making these decisions? Are these decisions that should be left to tech company executives? You may or may not agree that they made the right decision. And it really comes down to the question of whether we think social media companies are the right institutions to be making decisions about who gets to speak in these new public squares. Yeah, I think that's that's fascinating. I mean, the issue with these tech companies and these decisions is it does have a, an impact on the political process, right? Because you're taking away a massive audience for that person, which will affect, you know, their votes or in the example of the fringe parties, whether they can get someone elected. Yeah, I mean, if you're banned by Facebook, Twitter, and say TikTok, then you're essentially out of the mainstream political debate online. It's not that political parties or fringe political parties aren't banned um, as sometimes in different countries under different legislation. But the question is really who should be making those decisions? Is this something that should be left to tech companies? But also, because we've been looking at this from the angle of extremism, we've always been looking at it from the angle of what content should we remove? What content should not be allowed on these platforms? Rather than where do you draw the line between material or individuals who should be protected and should have a right to be online? Or is there even such a thing as a right? With so much of the public conversation now taking place on social media, these platforms have become a crucial arena for ideas and opinions to be shaped. Alistair, what kind of scrutiny should there be for the tech giants who run these digital town squares? The first question is, why do they need scrutiny? Why is this an issue we should be concerned about? I highlight in my previous work sort of three ethical issues. The first one is concentration of power. As we've said before, there's only a very few tech companies which control the vast majority of the social media space online. So when they're making a decision to remove you from the platform, they're not just making a decision to not have you on their online community. They're essentially making a decision about whether you can have a voice online. Now, is that something which therefore means that they should have a greater level of scrutiny? I mean, just deciding that whether me or Joe Blogs can post on their platform to their 50 friends, uh, is that the same decision versus someone who is um, a political 
actor and campaigning for office? Or should it be higher level scrutiny? Should, or should it be based on the content, not by the type of person? Not only have tech company executives faced scrutiny over content hosted on their platforms, so have infrastructure providers. These are the companies that provide services at a higher level of the internet stack, that protect websites and ensure they run smoothly. Historically, these types of companies didn't get involved in content moderation, until notably in 2017, following the deadly Unite the Right rally. This led to infrastructure provider Cloudflare suspending services to the far-right website, The Daily Stormer. These internet infrastructure companies, they may be removing stuff because it's illegal, but they can also remove stuff not because it's illegal, but because of um, you know societal pressure and so on. In many ways, there's a natural progression where you have um, terrorist and extremist content being more effectively moderated on the mainstream platforms. They then move to smaller platforms or their own websites, smaller platforms which have more of a free speech agenda, less willing to to remove content. At the same time, the scope of the content which society and political pressure feels should be removed has increased. But these platforms who um, are less willing to do it, the next step is to be able to take the platforms offline. But as you say, this raises real freedom of speech issues. You're not just um, removing someone's ability to make a post on a social media platform. You're saying, well, actually, you can't even have your own platform, your own website on the internet. Now, obviously, there's always circumstances where there's websites where we want to ever move from, from online. You know, terrorist-run websites or um, your child pornography or something, you absolutely want to be able to remove them online. But the question is, what about the in-between and where do we draw the line between what is terrorist content, what is extremist content, what is fringe political beliefs that we, dis- we disagree with? You know, where do we draw the line between what content shouldn't be allowed online and, um, and who makes those decisions? App stores also have considerable power when it comes to deplatforming. I mean, Trump being banned from social media platforms, because when he was banned from most of the mainstream social media platforms, he moved across to a newer platform, Parler, and so did lots of his supporters. But then something surprising happened was as that was happening, both Google and Apple removed Parler from their app stores. So essentially made it very hard for new members to, to join it. And then we saw Amazon Web Services withdrawing their service from it. So essentially, um, Parler as a platform was taken offline. So we had not just um, Trump being banned from major social media platforms, but then a whole platform which they, he, him, some supporters were moved to, was also essentially taken offline. And again, this is not to say this wasn't the right decision to make in these contexts. The question was, should this decision have been made by executives of tech companies? I mean, it might set Dana's precedence about companies feeling more happy about um, making such decisions, removing, I mean, Trump was a sitting president at the time, so removing mainstream political figures. But, you know, given the context, you can understand the decision. But we also think got to think about what happens if you're in similar situations. How would we feel about this if tech companies hadn't made those decisions and hadn't taken Trump offline when he did? Because... If you were going to go down a legal route, that wouldn't have happened in that time span. So arguing the other way, you think, well, actually, who should be in charge of decisions and what should be the due process to make sure that they happen, how we'd want them to happen as situations unfold. 
In October 2020, Facebook established its Oversight Board, an independent body to review and advise on content moderation disputes. The board is composed of experts from various fields, including law, human rights and journalism, and has the power to offer recommendations on decisions made by Facebook and Instagram. So, is the Facebook Oversight Board a viable model for tech platforms going forward? I think the Facebook Oversight Board is a, is a step in the right direction. One of the sort of major ethical dilemmas I've been looking at in terms of um, social media companies making decisions is that they're essentially judge, jury, and executioner. They make all the rules. They enforce all the rules. They do the appeals to the rules. And the reason why you have separation of powers is to be able to have some kind of oversight. And it's, a, it's to stop you know, bias and unintentional bias and abuses of the system. Now, not saying that there is bias, there is abuse of the system, but when it's all contained within an organization, you remove some of those safeguards and also it makes it harder to have transparency as well. Now, what I like about the Eversight Board is essentially it recognized that problem. You know, Zuckerberg essentially came out and said, well, I don't think we should be making all of these decisions by ourselves. We need someone to be able to review them and reflect them, which is not a role that um, governments were really playing at the time. So he set up this independent Eversight Board. Now, the idea in some ways is slightly flawed because how independent can it be because it was set up by Facebook itself? But I think it's about as independent as it can be in that structure. But at least it's a, at least it's a step in the right direction. At least it's trying to provide some kind of oversight. So the oversight board essentially is like the Supreme Court of content moderation for Facebook and for Instagram and where decisions can be referred to it. And they, like a Supreme Court, they pick um, cases which may have a wider implication and then they review them. But they're allowed, they can ask questions to Facebook and Instagram and they can see documents and stuff and they can really get into the detail of it. And one of the bigger things that's come out of it, and I spent the last few months reading through most of the content moderation decisions, it really shines a light into the inner workings of content moderation. And I think just highlights the point that Transparency is important because transparency leads to scrutiny. We've talked a lot about the practicality and mechanisms of content moderation. I'd just like to finish up by returning to the bigger, broader issue of the ethics of content moderation. What authority do tech companies have to moderate what we say online? One of the first ethical questions that we, we came across or addressed was, where do social media companies and tech companies in general get the moral authority to make decisions to be restricting freedom of expression online. Now, if this was um, if it was a government making all these decisions, we can make a very simple argument from the social contract that we give up some of our freedoms in, in return for security and government is restricting terrorist extremist content online under security and safety. But tech companies aren't aren't the government. So where do they get their moral authority? To, uh, to make these decisions? It's a little basic question. And that comes into sort of a wider question about how do we see social media companies? Well, what type of institutions are they? You know, are they just private companies which are only restricted by maximizing profit and not breaking the law? So therefore, they can remove whatever content they want and they have no responsibility to include anyone on the platform? Or... Do we see social media companies as something slightly different? 
more like a public utility, more in line with something like water or electricity, which is widely reg regulated. They also have a responsibility, um, a safety responsibility to users. You yeah. have to provide safe water, safe electricity. But so their ability to restrict terrorist content and extremist content and so on comes from that responsibility of safety. But also with um, public utilities, they have other kinds of responsibilities like having equal access. They don't get to decide who should have electricity or who should have water. So do we see them in some kind of public utility? Or there is the other question which tech companies have been arguing about against significantly is whether we see social media platforms as publishers or not, in which case they have a responsibility for either everything that gets published on their websites. If you were to see social media companies as publishers, the idea of a social media platform where I can publish something online, um, comment to my few friends, that a notion wouldn't exist anymore. But I think we also have to ask the question, if something is posted online and that is seen by millions of people, and if that content has also been seen by millions of people because it's been amplified and promoted by the algorithms of social media platforms, should we see that differently than me just posting to my 50 friends online? It's not saying necessarily it means that they're a publisher, but I think there's questions there we should look at. So is there a better alternative where the tech giants can be held to account and don't hold all the power? Yeah, so we talked a lot about the question about whether tech companies are the right people to make these decisions, restricting content online. So the counter-argument is, should governments be making these decisions? And when you think about it from that side, there are also some clear concerns. Because essentially saying that governments could play this active role online about deciding who can speak on platforms or not then that's potentially aiding authoritarian states. And we've seen numerous authoritarian states acting to restrict what's said on social media platforms. So that's a, a big cause for concern and, and a reason to think twice about empowering states to do that. But also, you know, tech companies have some advantages over governments on this side. On one hand, governments are often very slow to respond. We've seen how long it can take them to prescribe terrorist groups and so on and often don't have the necessary um, technical know-how and knowledge to be able to understand how these systems work to make effective regulation. So one of the things I've argued for is that I think a potential way forward is what we call co-regulation, a dynamic relationship between states and tech companies working together. So neither one of them has complete authority, but we have the advantages of both of them working together to be able to craft an environment which, on the one hand, removes terrorist and extremist content and um, ensures that the online space is a safe environment, but also protects infringements of free speech. Thank you, Alistair, for talking with me today. If you want to learn more about Tech Against Terrorism and our work, visit techagainstterrorism.org or follow us on Twitter at Tech versus Terrorism. I'm Archie McFarlane. This is the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with a brand new episode. Please rate, leave a review and share the episode as that really helps new people find us. This is an OG podcast production produced by Adrian Dangor. Edit and sound design by Oli Giyu. Music by Rowan Bishop.